Hello, welcome to the ATC Double Cut. I'm Micah Woods, and we're going to discuss today one of the topics from the ATC blog. Today, the topic is zoysia greens. Why would you ever use zoysia on golf course putting greens? Which is a question I've been asked, and I wrote a blog post to answer that. But it's not just me discussing this today. I have a special guest. Welcome, Chris Chase, the golf course superintendent from Clearwater Bay Golf and Country Club in Hong Kong. Thanks, Micah. Uh, it's good to be back on with you. I am so glad to discuss this with you because we've talked about this quite a bit and you've worked with Zoysia a lot, although not on, on putting greens, I don't think, but you've traveled around the region and you've uh, seen the weather. And the reason why you would use Zoysia on putting greens is to do with the weather. And I'm so glad that I have a chance to talk about this with you. Yeah, thanks, Mike. Yeah, I've been in Asia uh, 14 years now, so I've seen a lot of different grasses. I'm a huge fan of zoysia in general. Um, that said, I've never, I've never managed zoysia on a green. I don't know a lot about it. Um, I'd like to learn more about it. I'd like to learn your thoughts on, on why you'd want to have a zoysia putting green. I and I am happy to share my thoughts about why I think you might want to have a zoysia putting green. For anybody who doesn't already follow Chris on Twitter, his account is at HK Chase, and he has a habit of sharing these remarkably beautiful photographs uh, of golf courses, especially of Clearwater Bay. Um, which hole is it that it is like that cape that goes down and out a bit of a dogleg right? That's uh, hole hole three. It's a spectacular hole. It goes up out on a peninsula. We like to say so. It's right out in the ocean. Yeah, just water on all sides. It's just just beautiful. Just beautiful. So yeah, you see that it's just an iconic uh, golf hole. It it must be ranked somewhere as one of the top golf holes in the world. And you get a chance to maintain that. And that's, that's all it's Zoysia T, Zoysia fairway, Zoysia rough. Yeah. Yeah. We're the greens are, we have Tiff Eagle greens. We have about a 1.6 meter platinum pass palum collar around the green. And then the rest rough fairways, T's, um, Zoysia Matrola. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. Well, let's jump right into this blog post about Zoysia greens. Uh, and this is one that, I wrote um, originally, I think, in 2014. It, the title of it is Zoysia on Putting Greens, Why? And I was answering that because I had been posting about Zoysia Greens. I'd worked at a golf tournament in Japan that was played on Zoysia Greens, and some people were not familiar. that They, they didn't realize that you even could use Zoysia on greens, and I was asked the question, why would you put zoysia on putting greens? And I thought, well, I can explain that. Let me, let me have a try at explaining it. The, um, the golf course that I was working at during that tournament was Kea Golf Club. They have zoysia greens. And I start off this post by saying, why would one deliberately use manila grass? which is zoysia matrella or kori in Japan on golf course putting greens. If one would grow Bermuda and kori side by side and give them the same maintenance, the ball will roll better, smoother and farther 
on the Bermuda than on the Cori. And I noted that one can manage the zoysia. So I, I'm going to use the words Cori and zoysia interchangeably. One can manage zoysia to get an impressively smooth roll, but overall one will see a smoother roll on Bermuda than on zoysia. And I, I, I'm, I'm certain that this is the case, and there's lots of data to support that. I've measured the performance of grains. You, you saw me bring some of my measuring tools and make some measurements at Hong Kong Golf Club also, where I was measuring firmness, measuring green speed, measuring soil moisture content. Um, and I've done that at a lot of golf courses in multiple countries, pretty much every major golfing country in Asia. So I have quite a set of data on green speeds and firmness levels and so on. If we would do a direct comparison between Bermuda grass and zoysia grass greens, the way that they tend to be presented on average for play to golfers, Bermuda greens will roll on average about a foot faster than zoysia greens. And that is, that's what I was writing about in this blog post is that if you would grow Bermuda and zoysia side by side on putting greens, you're just going to get a better roll on Bermuda. And that's something that you've had lots of experience managing Bermuda. And I imagine you've seen balls roll on zoysia fairways and, uh, <laughs> it's, it rolls pretty good on Bermuda. You can probably imagine what it would roll like on really stiff <laughs> zoysia leaves. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, I w that would be a, a question I would have is, yeah, how do you get a smooth ball roll on, on Zoysia, I guess, yeah. Do you ever stripe, uh, at, at Hong Kong Golf Club, you have that coarser bladed Zoysia that's, that just thrives there, the one that you call Japonica, and which it very well may be Japonica. Um, and I remember back in 2007, I was there, and the fairways were had a, a cross-cut or diamond-cut pattern. If have you been on zoysia fairways that have had stripes burned in and you drive a cart across it and take your hand off the steering wheel and just watch the uh, steering wheel zigzag back and or twist back and forth as you hit different stripes with the tires? Oh yeah. 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 That's a, that's, I've seen that. And, um, yeah. The new, the new course and the Eden course family, they do that, what we call, or I call the zoysia japonica, which, um, to be honest, does really well. It's kind of, I think if you ask most of the turf managers around Hong Kong now, as far as a fairway grass and a rough grass, that's almost the preferred grass amongst most of the turf guys here now. And um, It does, yeah, we, we'd stripe it up, we'd burn lines, a little urea, a little iron sulfate, and you can burn some nice lines in it and stuff. But our, our grass, to your point, the, the Zoysia Matrella we have, we will get a little of that too. If you drive down the fairway, you get kind of, ground it's grainy or thatchy and um obviously with zoysia you, you do have to uh thatch control is a big issue a little vertica two three times a year you do a lot of top dressing and um that type of thing to try to keep the firmness control the thatch mm -hmm. yeah because if it's so well adapted to the climate of east and southeast asia that when it gets fertilizer and when it gets water it grows and it it's growing a lot, not just the above ground leaves, but it produces a lot of rhizomes and, and a few stolons and, and a lot of roots that are near the surface. So if you, 
apply enough fertilizer or uh I mean to say, if you apply more fertilizer than necessary, it will become quite thatchy, or it has the potential to become quite thatchy. Absolutely, so, absolutely. And sand is critical. You have to. They call me the Sandman here because I'm constantly top dressing. You know, light top dressing, frequent top dressings, and just it's in this tropical environment. It's absolutely critical to the health of the grass. That that. That is something that you've had great success with. I um, have you seen the um, videos that I've shown of the grass in a non-tropical environment at Kea Golf Club that hasn't been top dressed for a year, and the on the putting greens and the ball still bounces just fine. Yeah, you know I have seen that actually. I'm always impressed by the Kea videos and the, the low inputs, both with sand and with nutrients and things like that. It's Right. It, so it is, they're doing surprising. they're doing a lot of inputs to get good roll. They're doing a lot of inputs in terms of mowing, in terms of rolling and plant growth regulator. So the the way that they're able to get good roll on that zoysia is with a lot of a lot of mowing, a lot of rolling and really restricting the growth. And I have been surprised at how little sand has been required to maintain the firmness. So you say that sand is, um, is essential. And I just want, I would have, I would have said that too, eight years ago, but as the years have gone by and I've seen that it, that as they put less and less sand, the conditions are still okay. And I think it's, for me, it's about the growth, um, regulation. If, If you're able to limit the growth, then you may not need to put as much sand as we think. So that's an area of that, active uh, study. <laughs> yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. But, but another reason, the primary reason, I guess we do all the sanding too, is the amount of rainfall we get. We're doing we, we're two and a half to three meters of rain per year. So, um, you know, without, without the top dressing program we were on, you know, you'd have pretty soft, wet conditions for at least half of the year out here so you know with, with the amount of sand i put down in the last four or five years you know we can we can get 50 100 mm of rain and the next day you can almost take carts out on the fairways and stuff like that so mm-hmm. there's a real benefit in the drainage aspect of it and that type of thing too when when clearwater bay was built it was it sand capped or was it just on soil no it was pretty much on soil rocky soils things like that so over the years uh my predecessor we've really you know, I think it was last year we put down three four thousand ton of sand so just through the year we're trying to just build up a build up a good sand layer you know primarily for drainage but also you know for the health of the grass and firmness and, mm-hmm. um, it's been very successful as far as as keeping the course kind of dry and firm yeah i kaya is kind of built on sand dunes so um uh i'm not so concerned about the water down in the soil um, they have quite good natural drainage because it's built on sand dunes. But as far as just keeping the surface firm, because there they do have the drainage that's fine. So I don't think you need routine uh, top dressing at, at that location, at least. So it's interesting. So anyway, to answer the question that I put in this blog post, 
why then are there hundreds of golf courses in East and Southeast Asia with zoysia greens? It has to do with the climate. And I showed a picture of clouds in August at the golf course. This was a photo taken at midday and it was quite cloudy. And I looked up some data about just how cloudy it is. And I looked up the data for this August of 2014, where you can actually measure the sunshine hours. And those sunshine hours are reported at that weather station near Kea Golf Club. And during August of 2014, there were 75 and a half hours of sunshine during the month of August 2014. And the golf tournament was held at the end of August. Sunshine duration is measured uh, by how bright the sun is. So if the sun is not bright enough at the sensor, it won't be recorded as sunshine. It would be recorded as cloudy conditions. That's an average of 2.4 hours of sunshine per day during that month. And there were eight days during the month in which there was no sunshine recorded at all. Eight days that would, were so cloudy that it was no sunshine recorded. That's the type of conditions that you'd have in Hong Kong. I'm sure you, you sometimes have weeks on end where you don't see the sun. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we're, you know, sunlight's definitely a limiting factor or certainly a big challenge in growing grass here. Um, I tell people just a rough estimate, but our March is probably the least amount of sunlight. We get about a hundred hours per month. So you're looking at maybe three on average, three to four hours per day. And even our best month, July, we're getting maybe 200 hours in the month on average. So, uh, and then, and then yeah, we in the spring, March and April, uh, we call it kind of the fog season. You know, it's not uncommon for the fog to come in and we have to close the course for an entire day sometimes. And there's yeah. actually cases where we've closed the course for two, three days. The Hong so, Kong Open is in November. And when was the, or, I mean, usually it was in, in, scheduled in November, wasn't it? Yeah, a couple times very early December, but yeah, usually mid to late November or early December, which is absolutely the the prime time to hold a tournament in Hong Kong. It's, that's the best weather. Because what if you what if what if you had to do it Masters week, the first week of April? Would it that would well, be an awful time? It, it would it? be. It would almost be. Well, Clearwater Bay would almost be a no go. We've had talks about things and. March and April, like I said, there's it's too high a risk of fog coming in. So if you had a tournament, you know, and you have two days of fog where you can't, when I say fog, you can't see 100 yards up the fairway. So you have to close the course for safety. And it and st sticks it, around all day? It can. It's hit or miss. I mean, it's something, it, yeah, we, we've had to close the course all. Sometimes it'll kind of burn off by the afternoon. Sometimes it won't. But it's, you know, it's a little hit and miss. But there have been times where we've had to close the course you know, all day, sometimes even a couple days in a row. And you just couldn't risk that holding a major. It'd be, it'd be very risky to try to hold a major golf tournament during that time. That That's Clearwater Bay. Now, Hong Kong Golf Club, which is more inland, they don't they don't deal with the fog at all, really. They deal with, you know, more tree shade and other issues like that. But um, the fog is in Hong Kong is made, mainly limited to the coastal regions, which is, which would be us. How do you think the grass would be if you had to prepare a tiff eagle green in the first week of april oh, I'd, be, I'd be a little nervous that's for sure it's uh, you know we, we, we but to be honest we still generally provide pretty good condition um 
you know, the greens are still pretty good. I'd be, I'd be more concerned about the, the fog just stopping the play. I mean, um, overall, um, we definitely spray more fungicides March and April. Disease pressure is very high. But we still managed to keep the greens in relatively good shape and performing pretty well year-round. And but you you don't have a lot of trees around the greens, do you? Hardly any. Yeah, very very few tree tree issues around the greens. Yeah. Hong Kong Golf Club has more tree issues. Oh, lot, yeah, lots more. How um, would the, how would they do with the tournament the first week of April in terms of grass preparation? It, it would be a, it would be a bit of a struggle for them too. It's it's. March and April is certainly the, the most challenging time in Hong Kong from a disease standpoint, from a, just just the general, you know, the, temp, the, te- the temperatures aren't even that high yet for warm season grasses. And that time of year, you can still get temperatures down in the teens. And, you know, so you don't, you don't really start getting into the growing season into Hong Kong until probably late May, June, you know, the temperatures upper 20s and 30s. So it's not just the low light. March and April is lower temperatures and, we also do a lot of rounds that time of year too. Mm-hmm. So, when you have this type of low light, it can be challenging to grow Bermuda grass. Although it's possible, but you may have to put a lot more fungicide. Um, definitely, you have to be a little bit, a lot more careful about the mowing height and the uh, amount and intensity of treatment that you put on the surfaces. And I think, just to put this amount of cloud cover into context, this is the amount of sunshine that you would have in a place like London, England in February. So I mentioned that at this location in Japan, it was about, it was 75.5 hours of sunshine during the month of August. So this should be a summer month. But this summer month in that part of Japan in 2014 had less sunshine on average than London does in February. And my hometown of Portland, Oregon, in January, averages 2.8 hours of sunshine per day, per day. And so what happened in August 2014 was an average of 2.4 hours of sunshine per day which is what you get when you have 75 and a half hours of sunshine during the month. Hong Kong in a cloudy month on average might be around a hundred, but if it, if it was extra cloudy that month, you'd be well under a hundred hours too. So in Hong Kong, you can have temperatures where the warm season grass can grow. And I, I think it's quite problematic for ultra dwarf Bermuda grass when the temperatures are warm enough for the grass to grow, but the light is not enough for the grass to photosynthesize efficiently. And that's why you get so much disease and, and it's just uh, the grass doesn't want to grow normally. It, it gets uh, the leaves extend and, and get thin. And uh, if, then if you cut it too short, it, uh, you lose a lot of density on the putting surfaces. So that can be a problem in East and Southeast Asia. Hong Kong is um, an excellent example of a place where that can happen. Yeah, yeah, Mike, and it's, uh, I don't know, I think you probably know this, but when I came to Hong Kong in 2008, um, the five, there's five golf properties in Hong Kong, and all five of them basically had uh, Bermuda on their greens, Tiff Dwarf or Tiff Eagle and the local family 27. And now today, 
uh, three of them have converted over to pass pound, um, largely due to the reasons you're saying, um, low light. And I, and I believe all three of them are pretty happy with their decision. You know, we're still happy staying with the Ultra Dwarf Bermuda. Uh, I think family, everyone's happy with their choices, but it's, I do think some of the courses did pivot over to pass Palum, largely due to, like you said, just the low light conditions um, in the spring and the winter and um, the pass Palum seem to do a little better in, under those conditions. Yeah, the pass Palum uh, definitely does. I. If we flip the numbers now and start, instead of talking about hours of sunshine, if we talk about daily light integral requirements, which now we're talking about photosynthetic units, are you familiar with DLI or daily light integral? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. So if quality, it's quality of light too, it's not just, you know, I think that's what you're getting to now is that it's, it's not just the, you know, sun or not sun it's the cloudiness and the quality of the light that comes through that's right it's not just the duration of light it's the sum of the light that the plant can use and if you look at that which requires a different type of sensor and if you look at those data what you would see is that in in uh, in the summer if if we're in june or july and we have a clear day with no clouds in the summer you could expect a dli of about 60 and the units are 60 moles of photos of photons of photosynthetic light per square meter the that would be 60 that's what you get on a pure sunday and so that's with no clouds and no tree shade and if you have that any grass is going to thrive because grass is uh, are photosynthetic machines, so they, they thrive in that. But what the reality is, is there is cloud cover and there is tree shade, and those will restrict the amount of light. So realistically, you may be at 48. Uh, you may have a DLI of 48. And then you also have season. So in the winter, it's less because there's um, less sunshine and Daylight, yeah. The the day lengths are shorter. The sun is farther away, so the light intensity for any second is less intense than it would be in summer. So you've got all of those factors, which is determined by your latitude and longitude, basically by your latitude coordinates. Um, but how far north and south you are of the equator, but also it's based on your site-specific weather conditions. So from that, you can figure out the daily light integral. And we can talk about what the different grass tolerances are. I, I think that for ultra dwarf Bermuda grass, we can say 40. And there's been research in the United States that's these really short studies where they, they do the study from like May until September and they measure what light restriction does. And when they do those kind of studies, they turn up a value of 31. So they say that there's been a couple of studies that turn up a, a similar number where that says ultra dwarf Bermuda grass needs about thir a DLI of 31 to provide acceptable conditions. But I think you need about 40. And the reason why I think that 40 is a better number to look at is maybe because I have high standards and how good the putting greens should be. But also, um, I think the grass grows for 12 months out of the year and then it grows the next year and then it grows the next year and then it grows the next year. So 
grass grass doesn't grow in the only the four months of the experiment. I think if you continue restricting the light at a level of 31, uh, at a DLI of 31, if you restrict the light at that level for month after month after month, not just when you stop the experiment in September, but grow it for another year, what you'll find is the grass that was at acceptable quality won't be at acceptable quality anymore. So for me, what I call a no problem DLI for ultradwarf Bermuda grass would be 40. And then to rank the different grasses, I think for seashore paspalum, you can drop that to 30. And for zoysia matrella, for cori, you can drop that down to 20. So I think you can have about half as much photosynthetic light, and that's a no problem. I mean, you could have half as much light as Bermuda needs and to be no problem, and I think that's your no problem level for zoysia. And it's not based on short field plot research it's just based on observing how grasses perform around the the world and then check cross-referencing that against what the dli has been with those numbers you just you just gave out with that th that would vary based on your height of cut correct it would uh, yeah good point so i mean that for putting green turf so like a 3.1 mm or something yeah so yeah. You raise, yeah, you raise the height of cut, you could probably get by with a... With Absolutely. A, you you could probably have a no-problem Bermuda grass at 25 if it's fairway. Um, it, it's not going to be thriving at 25 because that's, that's like... Remember, a full Sunday is going to be 60. So you can start thinking that 40 would be like a two-third Sunday and... A DLI of 30 is like 50% shade, and a DLI of 20 is like 66% shade in the summer. And, you know, Bermuda grass fairways, I think you can do okay at, at about 50% shade, but I don't want to manage Bermuda grass greens that are in shade until noon and only get <laughs> afternoon sun. And that's why I think you can, you can say that that a DLI of 31 is what the experiment shows. But if you only do the experiment for four months and then you repeat it the next year and it's only for four months, I don't think that's realistic about how Bermuda grass is actually managed on greens. Right. So anyway, what, what one sees in Asia is some conditions where and I didn't look this up, but uh, I've got lots of blog posts about this, and it reminds me that uh, this would be another interesting one to talk about, about how shaded places are. Places like Hong Kong in March uh, probably have an average DLI of something in the, in the, I don't, I'm, I'm just going to guess that it's like 20, um, and that's quite shaded. And places like Hanoi, you've, have you been to Hanoi in northern Vietnam? Oh, yeah, yeah, many times. It's very similar to Hong Kong climate, very similar. It's quite cloudy, isn't it? It is. Yeah, they have a lot of the same challenges we do. Yeah. And so that's a place where I know there's been a lot of zoysia used recently, and from what I understand, it's doing quite well, and that is no surprise because in that type of climate where there is such low light conditions, the um, Bermuda grass... It's possible to grow it, but you just have to manage it quite well. And not everybody 
is managing grass as well. And, and in that case, the zoysia becomes a grass that doesn't die, where you can definitely kill Bermuda grass if you don't manage it well during low light conditions. Yeah, I would agree with that. And so that's how I closed my blog post. I said, the reason for choosing cori, zoysia, instead of Bermuda in East and Southeast Asia is that cori doesn't die. And I said, imagine growing Bermuda grass greens and trying to prepare them for a tournament when the amount of sunshine is less than London gets in February or Portland, Oregon gets in January. And when not a single day for a month has as much sunshine as an average day does in Atlanta. So that's something that I tried to explain why you would use zoysia on putting greens and the reason why you would use zoysia on putting greens is because it doesn't die when you have cloudy weather. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense. I think, I think if you're at a site and specifically at a site that's struggling with Bermuda grass, you know, why not try something different? Um, mm-hmm. And especially when you've got the cloud cover that already restricts the light that much, if you then start throwing tree shade into it, you can have corners of the greens or, or a third of the green that, that uh, and, and you've probably seen this where Tiff Eagle on a, on some courses, you'll go see where under the tree shade, there's bare ground or more algae. And then the other side of the green that's in full sun is normal, fine quality grass. Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. You get thinned out areas and algae. And, and if, if golf courses don't want to take that tree out, they can solve that problem by changing to zoysia. But the problem is when you get zoysia greens, you've got a very stiff leaf blade, so it's got quite a bit of grain. There's um, marketing talk that zoysia doesn't have grain, which I have a giggle at every time I see it, um, because you mentioned how grainy the fairways are, and you've seen that with zoysia, if you drive a golf cart across it, it will twist the tires much more than Bermuda grass or seashore paspalum will. The grass itself has stiffer leaf blades that will if they grab a golf cart tire, they'll definitely grab a golf ball and cause that to deviate offline. So you get you get um, some notorious grain on zoysia. I think it's funny that people sell it and say it it doesn't have um, grain, but the it definitely stays alive, and that's why you use it on greens. And then here's what I think about zoysia, and I've played on a lot of zoysia greens. If you can keep the growth rate slow enough, you can cut it really short if you have a fine bladed zoysia. It absolutely is oblivious to the cloud cover and shade within within reason. So generally, uh, in the types of climate that we'd have in Southeast Asia and the types of climate that you'd have almost anywhere in the world that it's warm enough to grow zoysia, um, it can tolerate tree shade and and that kind of weather. So you can cut it really short. And then the leaf blades get even stiffer the shorter you cut it because you're getting right down to the base of the plant and that tends to be a really stiff part of the leaf blade. But then... Similar to past palm, right? I know guys mowing past palm greens at 2mm and yeah, it's almost like you're not going to have grain when you mow that lower, you know? 
So, and they can tolerate that low height of cut because they don't need the, the sunlight as much. They can tolerate that low height of cut, but you have to you have to manage the zoysia pretty intensely in order to get the green speed, because the leaf blades are so stiff that the that the ball doesn't roll across it so smoothly like it does Bermuda grass. Which is why when you go measure this, when you put the grasses side by side, Bermuda and uh, zoysia, and give them the same maintenance, the Bermuda will be considerably faster. And that's why I'm quite curious about, I mean, it's the reason why everybody in the region, and we, I think we talked about this in a previous discussion that we had, was, was how there's been a history of using Bermuda grass and then seashore paspalum and now using more zoysia in Southeast Asia. And I think the reason why people were so happy to use Bermuda grass is because it gives such an improved ball roll over zoysia that people had been using and a lot of these classic clubs in southeast asia still do have zoysia but they were using bermuda um when they were developing new clubs in the 90s people were so happy to use bermuda grass because the ball roll is something special yeah i mean that's still kind of what i always go back to mike is that it's hard for, it's hard for it's hard to beat a good ultra dwarf Bermuda, I think, when managed well and the firmness you can get, the smoothness, the green speeds, and um, but like you said, if, if you're struggling, you know, if you're struggling to grow the ultra dwarf in a certain area, you know, you have to try something else, right? And in my time, the pivot's usually been towards past Palom, just in my area of Vietnam and China and Hong Kong. But you know, maybe you're maybe you're right. I'm, I, like I said, I'm not that experienced with Zoyjian Green, so. Yeah, it I would, think it would, it would be interesting to see. I know, it's, like you said, I know more of it's coming into Vietnam now. There's five courses that have it. Yeah, I'd be definitely curious to follow how that goes and how how Zoysia greens work. Yeah. yeah, we're all following it quite closely. I um, I've seen some new courses. I mean, some courses in Thailand are using some of the new Zoysias also. And I mentioned when when you were on the show previously about a course in bangkok tana city that sodded their greens with uh m85 zoysia which is one of the new varieties from the united states and that uh that one they had an on-site nursery and they cut it as big roll sod and sodded it and um did like one green overnight and then open the next day for play because you'd ask me how long it takes for zoysia greens to grow in and and I think one of the reasons that many of the new courses haven't used zoysia over the past 20 years is nobody wanted to deal with the growing time because it takes a long time to establish zoysia from sprigs. And it's That's, quite... And, and even renovations, you know, no, no owner wants to hear that the course is going to be shut down for six months or whatever it might be. So, yeah, that, that's been, in my experience working in Vietnam, that was one of the limiting factors. And um, from what I understand, though, some of that growing time is maybe exaggerated a little bit. I know maybe guys can grow it in a little quicker. Sodding, I've never really explored that option. But, but generally speaking, yeah, an owner or a facility doesn't really want to shut down for six months, or even a new facility doesn't want to. You know, it's always they want to. I know. Fast. It's yeah. it's it's always rush, 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 and um, my it, yeah. My opinion about that is always the golf course is going to be a entity, presumably for many, many years. 
and I think that it should be done right. So I'm not like, I want to make sure it has a good irrigation system. <laughs> I want to make sure the cart paths are constructed. Well, I want to make sure that the landscape plants have been, uh, well designed uh, and well selected and that the the that they're going to actually grow in the soil and the irrigation water that that you have and stuff and you know you you often see these rush projects and that like uh all of a sudden it's like oops we've got salty water and none of our landscape plants grow they don't so all your trees die and so then it never really seems to finish because you have to redo so many things so i'm like what is what is an extra two or three months? Like, I'll ask you, to grow into a Tiffigo green from Spriggs, uh, what are you comfortable with to open? Like, from, from planting day to open? Well, I mean, I kind of, I've done it, you know, four to six weeks. Um, I don't like to, you know, I like to, conservatively, I'd say two months you can do it, but, you know, and past pounds the same way. You can grow in a past pound green in four to six weeks seen it done um is it going to roll perfect at that point probably not but i mean you could get you could get golfers out on there in six weeks i would think during during ideal growing conditions of course and and when when is it going to be good well once that's yeah now you're talking maybe two to three months in that area yeah so that's the kind of the number that yeah, I want to do like 60 days. Like I want at least, of course you can, you can have full coverage and you can have people out there. You could have it open to have it like be sort of good, maybe 60 days and to have something that you're like, you're pretty, you're like sure that it could be quite good, maybe three months. And so for, for Zoysia, I think we're just adding a couple months to that. You're going to have full coverage after four months and and it could be pretty good after, after six from Spriggs. Yeah. So, so I look at the entire project and I say, what isn't, if you're, ha you're if you're going to have a golf entity, if you're going to have a, a, a golf operation that is going to be there for, for many, many years, hopefully more than a decade, what is an extra two months, two or three months at the time of growing? I've, I've never quite understood the rush to say, let's choose a grass that's less well adapted to the climate, a grass that may have a higher maintenance cost, <laughs> a grass that's going to require more pesticides, a grass that's going to require a more, uh, put more stress on the superintendent who needs to be highly skilled um, in order to manage ultra dwarf Bermuda grass well. Um, so well, you're, that's yeah, my. You're, yeah, you're 100% I mean, right. I mean, as a superintendent, choosing the right grass is maybe the most important decision a golf property can make. It's something you're going to live with for many, many years, you know. So, mm -hmm. and as you said, it'll affect the inputs, it'll affect playability, all sorts of factors. So, I 100% mm -hmm. yeah, agree. It, it, it's, it's interesting and it's, it's, uh, it's odd to me how uh, in South China, in uh, northern Vietnam for a long time in Hong Kong, uh, the choice has always been paspalum. When when there's these issues with low light and poor performance of ultra dwarf Bermuda grass uh, under the really extreme weather conditions and extra shade and and so on, and you're just and people were feeling that they need to use a different grass. 
they did choose seashore paspalum and planted seashore paspalum, which is a good choice in comparison to ultra dwarf Bermuda grass or in comparison to uh, tiff dwarf or any kind of Bermuda grass. But I yeah. feel there's another answer that's right under everybody's feet, which you're using on tees, fairways, all over the place is the zoysia on lawns and, and traffic circles and, and roadsides. And that grass is just right there. It, it's been surprising to me that more clubs haven't explored using that. Because if you just go, now just go out a little bit. Go to uh, Okinawa. Go to Kyushu in southern Japan, go to the Philippines, which is an hour and 45 minute plane ride from Hong Kong, something like that. Go to Bangkok, which is a two hours and 15 minute plane ride. Uh, and all of a sudden you could see, wow, there's soysia greens everywhere and they're just thriving. And, and I feel that this is, a lot of the Paspalum choice has been commercial because uh, it was always like marketed as this is the premium grass. Well, and yeah. Well, I think there's there's two things there with the past Palum kind of wave that came in, and um, and I'm again I speak for Vietnam and China and things like that. But I think first off, it was always marketed as the if you have bad water quality, past Palum's your grass. And we all we both know there's a lot of bad water quality in um throughout Asia. I think. The truth is, I think these zoysias and even Bermudas are more tolerant to some of these salts and stuff than we, than we maybe previously thought. But the, the go-to was always test your, you any bit of bad water, well, you got to have past pound. And I don't know if that's entirely true and all, or entirely necessary in all the cases. But um, but then the second factor was the, the wow factor of the past pound. It came in, um, you know, it's striped up, stripes up about as great as any grass you can see. Owners see that, and that's the grass I want. You know, I want that stripes and, but again, you know, I've seen beautifully striped up Bermudas and Zoysias as well. So I don't know if that was overplayed as well, but I think in my time, at least dealing with grasses in Vietnam, it was, you know, you have bad water, you got to pass down or you have that. Wow. Look at that golf course green, you know, green year round striped up beautifully. I want past down. You know, so it's, yeah. I think those are, I think those might've been two, two of the <clears> biggest <throat> factors driving the past Palum wave into Asia, I think. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think you're right. I, I think I probably travel more than most people. So, um, you know, I, I see what's growing in Sri Lanka and in Bangladesh and in North India and South India and, and, uh, Bengal and Hokkaido and Okinawa and in, uh, Davao and Cebu and Manila and so on. So I'm, I'm seeing all of these success stories with different grass and it's, it's rarely a paspalum success story <laughs> and it's often success stories with other grasses. And especially like, um, my, I mean, I guess one of my other criticisms is just how big the Japanese golf industry is and how, uh, Japan to me is a part of Asia and, and the climate in Japan is quite similar to parts of Asia. And yet, and the grasses work so well in Japan, and yet people in Asia, uh, like in Hong Kong or Vietnam, have been influenced by American grasses when they could just take a flight to Osaka or Nagoya or Tokyo 
and and go see some of the golf courses in Japan, you want to see nice striping, go look at some of the Zoysia fairways in Japan and how those get striped up. And and it's just like, wow. So of course, I've seen all of that and then I I just feel like maybe some of the decision making in Asia uh has been too influenced just like locally without looking at the big picture um or maybe without exploring all the options and i think it goes back to what you were saying the real big problem is well and another one you mentioned grow in time i'm gonna say availability because it there were always like if you wanted to buy tiff eagle or you wanted to buy seashore paspalum it's always been possible to know where you can get that from a modern high quality nursery and i know your zoysia that you get from south china that's grown probably at more rustic uh local type nurseries i suppose um so all uh there's a difference in level between what the perception is of the quality of grass that you're getting from a more uh modern nursery growing paspalum versus a nursery that would be growing some of the local zoysias yeah that's right you know and i think throughout the past know in Asia there's there isn't the communication that you maybe have throughout the throughout the US I mean I wish I wish more golf courses would communicate with each other collaborate um, I think you're starting to see some of that with the Asian Golf Industry Federation um, I know you do a wonderful job of trying to compile information and share it throughout Asia but um, you know they don't have the NTEP trials necessarily information and stuff they're making a lot of decisions that aren't necessarily based on science and, um, sometimes they're just based on, you know, visual things like that, subjective reasons. and um, Which makes it easy to do the marketing, which is like Thai Country Club. Thai Country Club looks so good with Paspalum for so long. And Amata Spring looks so good with Paspalum for so long that, that those venues are so good for marketing. So if you wanted to sell those grasses or all you have to do is take somebody out to those places and see the grass, but nobody's looking at, uh, Amata Spring had the highest maintenance budget in Thailand by far, I'm, I'm sure for many, many years. And I, I don't know what that is right now, but I'm sure that it's been a, a high cost place to maintain. Thai Country Club, if you, uh, that Paspalum eventually it went away. I don't know. Um, there must be a little bit out there, but when you did you visit Brian when he was there? No, I never had the chance with Colors, but I talked to Brian regularly. Understood the very poor water quality. Yeah, they had poor water quality, but they had a lot of uh, zoysia coming in there. Um, yeah. So I I imagine that um, there there certainly was a, a huge amount of zoysia encroaching on that paspalum. So there are those kind of issues that. Either you have to spend a lot of money to take care of paspalum, or it can get invaded by other grasses eventually. So, uh, and yeah, I'm just one person and I write and talk in English. So um, it's no surprise that uh, the information that I share only has a limited uh, reach. But, you know, that's what I'm trying to do with this podcast also, or with this uh, video podcast series is try to get people to, pay attention to some of the stuff that's on my blog. Like um, this, this post about Zoysia Greens was originally put up in 2014. And, um, you know, I've been writing about this stuff for years. I, uh, the first post I did on my blog, I, I started ATC in 2006 and had a, 
an old website that I didn't really have a blog on. And then in 2009, I started a blog where I said, I, I have so much stuff I want to share and write about. I'm going to um, do this. The very, so the very first post I did when I started that new blog was about, uh, I think it was called Excellent Grass Selection. And it was about uh, Banyan Golf Club in Huahin, Thailand that had paspalum teas. And then they put zoysia on fairways and rough. And it had just opened. So this is like uh, 2007, 2008 was the construction and grass selection and planting and so on. And they had Tiff Eagle on the greens. So I was highlighting that in, uh, in 2009 as this is what I think is excellent grass selection. And I've been giving seminars and so on, but it just, it always has a limited reach, but I, I think I'm right. I'm, I, uh, I'm maybe I'm stubborn. And if I, if I have an idea about something, I'm passionate about communicating it, as you would know, because we've had conversations and uh, and so on over the years. And like, <laughs> anyway, I'm. I think Zoysia has a, a great fit in this part of the world. You know it does. Um, and I think on greens, I still like ultra dwarf Bermuda grass. I just think that to answer the question why you would use Zoysia on greens, it's if you can't. If it can't handle the tree shade and the weather, if the and basically that's the light. If it can't handle the low light conditions, the the ultra dwarf Bermuda grass cannot handle the low light. A a great choice. You bring up paspalum. I I think you you also can go to zoysia, which is going to be even more shade tolerant. Um, but just recognize that the ball roll is not going to be as good as it would be on Bermuda unless you do a lot of extra work. Yeah, that makes sense, Mike. And that's, you know, I don't, I don't claim to be smart enough to have all the answers on which grass to use where, but, uh, you know, and my advice is, is to really just visit, visit the neighboring courses, communicate with other, other superintendents, other experts, I guess, and try, try out, try out the different grasses. That's, now that we're having this talk, I'm, I'm kind of regretting. I mean, I've been managing turf in Hong Kong now 14 years, and I kind of regret not starting up a, a trial green or a nursery and, and testing the zoysia. Maybe, maybe that's something I'll do. Uh, but you know, you don't you don't really know you don't really know for sure. I guess until you plant the grass, put it in, and manage it on your site, you know, see how it does. That, man, you've got some great advice. That is that <laughs> is excellent. Um, yeah, and. I, I'm always learning. Um, so I've got some sarangoon grass, some digitaria didactyla growing at home now. <laughs> I'm who knows, maybe, maybe uh, that grass because that grass leans over. It's it's really flat on a putting green. So it may be that five and it's quite shade tolerant too. So it may be five or ten years from now. I say, you know what, zoysia is such a hassle on greens. Why don't you plant di digitaria didactyla, but make sure you don't cut it too short or it'll be way too fast. <laughs> so um, you just have to test it. You have to trial it. That's exactly right. And that reminds me, Bob Haran, who's at Manila Golf Club, he he came there after they'd already changed from zoysia greens to paspalum. And that, that project happened in about 2007. So the, that was an old course right in the heart of Manila. Zoysia matrella greens, the old style greens, and they changed it to seashore paspalum. It, they struggled with the amount of shade that they had there. 
because they have buildings. They have like 55 story or 60 story towers that are just on the east side of the golf course. They throw too much shade uh, combined with the weather conditions that you'd have in Manila. And those particular greens just weren't able to tolerate it. And Bob took the shadiest greens and he did uh, some trials. He did some Bermuda grasses. He did Novatech, which is supposed to have better and, and and it does tend to do better in cloudy conditions. That's a type of Bermuda grass. And he did zoysia and he did seashore paspalum and um, maybe tiff eagle too. And he did those trials for a while and they found that zoysia was the best by far. And then they started converting the greens to zoysia. And now those greens are, are quite good. And yeah, I, you're, you're right. Do your own onsite trials. Just explore the full range of options. And I, I feel like sometimes there's just been like it's either this bermuda or that bermuda let's choose which one is best or let's choose bermuda versus paspalum and i feel if people would open their uh range of ideas and just say well what are they using in tokyo under this condition or what what is it in manila or in bangkok if people would just go a little bit farther afield and not just go look at what's working in shenzhen versus hong kong or something i think um by exploring that fuller range of options, uh, one could be more likely to get the ideal choice for one's facility. So it's, it's fascinating. And yeah, we don't know the answers yet because now there's all these new courses planning Zoja. We'll see. We'll have to go play those, have Jim Myers come over sometime and we'll play uh, golf. We'll go play golf on Bermuda. Uh, Zoysia and Paspalum, we could do that all in one day and, and decide which one we like the best. That'd be fun. That would be fun, Michael. We'll definitely have to do that. Yeah. <laughs> all right, Jim. Well, that's your invitation. <laughs> Jim would love to come out, man. Jim loves, he loves coming out to Asia. Hong yeah. Kong. That he's got, awesome. you know, you know, man, he's, he's, you'll have to wait till after his tournament, though, because he has an LPGA event, I think, coming up. But... Yeah. That's, that's awesome that now that course has some tree shade columbia edgewater in uh portland my my hometown uh that's got some tree shade but they uh we have the grasses that work there and uh and there's quite a bit of sunshine in the summer usually in in portland so that'll be fun to watch and that's a beautiful course it'll be fun to watch uh that tournament this year yeah, I always I always joke with Jim that Portland's he's he's in the easiest place in the world to grow grass. I'm in the toughest. <laughs> <laughs> That's a, I I I should make a note. Uh, that would make a great blog post. Uh, e, easy in Portland, uh, difficult Hong Kong. in Hong Kong. <laughs> I I think that it would be a great. Uh, I I think you're about right. And I, I think that would be a good blog post for me to try to explain why that is. Because uh, in Portland, you have low humidity. And no matter how hot it gets during the day, you almost always get quite low nighttime temperatures. And so if you're growing cool season grass and it's 15 degrees Celsius at night or 12 degrees Celsius at night, that is just wonderful conditions. And then it doesn't rain so much. So if you have a good irrigation system, you're able to control the water and... Uh, yeah, it's the grass just grows really well in that part of Oregon. And then Hong Kong, we've talked to death all of the the troublesome light conditions and sometimes the poor water quality and so on. So it's been great having you on the show, Chris. Thank you so much for joining me to really uh, <laughs> just talk 
uh, about something that I'm very interested in. I don't know how many other people around the world are interested in this, maybe a niche topic of which grasses work best in, in these type of tropical areas. No, it's been really enjoyed it, Mike. I love, like I said, I love talking about grass, love talking about turf. Um, anytime you want to be back on, I would be more than happy to do it. Awesome. Well, uh, with your, we're in similar time zones at the moment. So when we're in similar time zones, I think it's good when I, when I happen to be at home as I am today and I say, maybe I could record a show, it would be, uh, kind of cool to contact you and see if you have some time, but you've been busy. You've been doing that bunker, <laughs> redoing all the bunkers out there. So I imagine that is keeping you busy and maybe I can't just call you on short notice and say, let's, let's record a show. Uh, in 15 yeah, no, minutes. <laughs> yeah, very busy. Our, our architect, Harley Cruz, he's on site tomorrow too, which will be nice. So yeah, we're moving along with the bunker project pretty well. We're about two thirds of the way done and it's, it's been very successful. It's amazing. That'd be maybe a topic for another day, but I'd love to talk bunker, bunker maintenance, and how to reduce labor cost through certain bunker construction methods. Because it, it really is a game changer in this high rainfall environment if you can get some of these new new technology i guess into the bunkers it's you know the washouts contamination like that but maybe a topic for another day right now yeah let's let's talk about that <laughs> i'm reminded of going to foshan golf club in guangzhou and uh, i visited there one time after a heavy rain it was shocking how destroyed those bunkers were and the and and if you start thinking about the frequency of high intensity rainfall events and how much work gets done to put the bunkers back into a playable condition. Um, you probably have some nightmare stories about that and then some success stories about that. So that would be a fascinating topic. I'll, I'll make a note of that also. All right, Chris, thanks. I will let you go. Thanks for joining me on the ATC double cut. Appreciate it, Micah. Have a good day now. Yep. All right. Thanks a lot. All right, everybody. That was Chris Chase from Clearwater Bay. And he has all kinds of experience. He's been working in Asia just about as long as I have. So we've seen a lot of the same things. And um, I've been seeing it from my perspective here in Thailand and from the places where I travel around. And he's been seeing it at really on the ground, sometimes being for much of that time being responsible for actually producing good turf grass conditions where I just observe and talk about getting good turf grass conditions. So it's so great to have an expert like Chris to talk with on the show. Thank you so much for joining me and I'll be back again soon with another of the many varied topics that I've written about on the blog, giving it the double cut treatment to talk about it, explain why I thought it was worth writing about, why I think you might like to read about it. You can find all kinds of information about that on my website at www.asianturfgrass.com. If you haven't been to that website, please check it out and I'll put a link to that and to this post that we talked about in the description of this show. All right. Thanks, everybody. From Yantikau, Thailand, for ATC, I'm Michael Woods.